And we are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hello, all out there. Uh, I uh, I got rid of the uh, blog talk radio thing, and I kind of, uh, even not having it there, even though I knew that I wasn't going to have it, kind of threw me off there. So I hope you are all safe and well out there one way or another. And without further ado, I'm going to go out to Iowa uh, to where Brian Sidney Parrott joins us. And, and how are you guys doing out there with all this uh, going on? COVID and beyond. Oh, we're doing fine. You know, uh, Iowa wasn't wasn't uh, uh, locked down that badly. I mean, we school. I coach a girls' high school tennis team, and we weren't able to do that this spring. Um, but anyway, everything's fine. Things are opening up again, and um, all the corn is planted, and it's growing very quickly. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that uh, agriculture is, is starting to make sure that they're they're getting everything. I mean, that you know, that's one of the things that's really kept up here, of course, is the fact that they've had to keep the supermarket stocked. So one way or another, they seem to have been, been getting that going. And, um, you know, Brian, I, I was listening to uh, the two podcasts that we were able to do, and, and, and they, they were certainly, a, 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 obviously, apparently we had some time zone issues. Not today. We're getting off, and, and we're going to go as long as we can here. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we really did a broad stroke in terms of, of just talking about all the machinations of your, uh, of your dad's life and, and the things that he, he came across regarding this team. But I wanted to, you know, as, as I've been writing lately about 1937 and 1941, looking specifically at the, what would hypothetically be a first season of this thing. Uh, so I kind of wanted to even go be, be back before that, before 1937, and just talk about your, your dad's career as a writer, you know, reading the Lords of Baseball. Uh, he, he goes into some of these, these, it, it, these, these, heavy, these heavy guys in, in the, uh, the journalism, uh, the, the height of the journalism era, where you had, what, like eight to ten newspapers in the city, something crazy like that. Um, and, and, and there's so many different directions. Yeah, go ahead. No, the, the dad told me at one time there were 18, 18 daily newspapers in New yeah. York. And, they, and, and something like they were churning out three different copies a day. Uh, um, and that, that's, that's where I really want to dive deep because it's, it's, the entire thing is remarkable, remarkable to me, the fact that every day, all I mean, what are we talking about? How, how many pages? do you think we're in one of, let's say, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle? How many pages were in uh, any random copy on a, a Thursday in 1936? Geez, I really would have no idea how many. I'm, I know they, you know, they <clears throat> stopped the presses when they had a new headline and would sell another paper, but yeah, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm sure it was a, a, a regular paper, maybe the same size as a, New York Post is today, but I I really don't know. Right? Yeah. No. It, it's it's so in in depth. It, it's unbelievable that they were able to churn that much copy out. Uh, and, and so, talk about how your dad got started with the Brooklyn Eagle. Well, um, Dad was put into St. John's University when he was fourteen years old, and. He had won a lot of spelling bees, and uh, so he went into college at 14 and graduated at 18. But when he was in uh, 
St. John's, um, he was supplying St. John's University sports to the Brooklyn Eagle. You know, he became a link between uh, the Brooklyn Eagle and St. John's University. And uh, at 18, he he went and got his master's in English. So up until 21, he was a link between St. John's University and Taps Gallagher, and there were a lot of uh, characters, um, and the Brooklyn Eagle. And when he he got his master's, they offered him a job uh, to become a writer for the Brooklyn Eagle, and his mother said no. She didn't want him hanging around with drunken sports writers. So um, Dad got somebody to call his mom and say, oh, it's it's not that bad. And uh, and so she said, okay. And he started writing for the Eagle, I think, at 21. And, I mean, as a, as a beat reporter. And he got different assignments, which he loved, a racetrack, which his mother didn't want him to go to. And anyway, then when some writer uh, that was covering the Dodgers um, – something happened and the the editor or the sports editor wanted to send uh, dad down to cover the Dodgers in Florida and they were going to fly him down and his mother said no you know she's not letting him get on one of those contraptions so the compromise was he uh, he went down on the train but he started covering the Dodgers pretty early i think he it was like in 23 when he was about 23 but um he got he loved all the different sports from horse racing he loved tennis and uh he covered college football that's how he knew vince lombardi and he was at the first basketball game at uh, madison square garden uh but he covered everything uh, so and you know and then he was also a contributor for the Sporting News, which he became friends with J.G. Taylor Spink, who was the publisher of the Sporting News. And Spink used to ask for stories from Dad, and he would uh, he would wire him. So he was he was covering everything in the 30s, and he got the Dodger beat. Um, and then, but he, you know, I know one of the World Series between the Giants. Carl Hubble, Dad wrote for uh, Carl Hubble's piece in the World Series and also Lou Gehrig. I think that might have been around 38 or something, but he was picking up, you know, he was doing, and he was also writing magazine articles. So he was, for 15, excuse me, 15 years, he was a Brooklyn Eagle sports writer and a columnist. He had a a column called Both Sides, Sea Sports from Both Sides, and uh, uh, it was promoted on the the trucks that delivered the papers and stuff like that. But anyway, he uh, he he loved to write. He loved to, uh, and he could put a uh, a sentence together pretty well. Yeah, and, I mean, just hearing the fact that he started college when he was 14, it, it, I mean, it sounds like he was a savant, and um, it, it, it just, just talk about how, how intelligent your, your dad was. You know, I, 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 was, I remember uh, on the, some of the uh, other podcasts we did talking about how his mother would make him 
uh, learn 10 words before he left in the morning? Right. That's how, you know, his mother, he was an only child, and his mother wanted him to be an English professor, actually, at uh, St. John's. And she had him learn 10 words a day out of the dictionary before he could go out to play, which he liked going. They lived on a canal in Howard Beach. And um, uh, so when he, he was winning all these spelling bees around New York, and they put him into high school at 11, and then they put him into college at 14. So <clears throat> I never stumped him on a word. I was uh, I was not as... Uh, a speller, I wasn't, I was, if I got the, you know, I, anyway, I used to drive dad nuts when I gave him my paper and he would correct it. It looked like the dog ate it when he gave it back to me because he, he was <clears throat> edited all the, but whenever <laughs> I asked him about a word, I'd say, dad, what is this word? And he'd give me the Greek, the Latin derivations, and then use it in a sentence. And so he, he really was, he had quite a command, and I think that's why he and Branch Ricky became such close friends. Because Ricky, Dad could follow Ricky's um, vocabulary, which was extensive. Also, one of the things that I loved uh, reading about Branch Ricky was that he he basically would sometimes communicate in stories. Uh, that would be just to to prove his point, whether it was a moral point or or otherwise. Yeah, Dad said Ricky was the most intelligent man he'd ever met in his life, and uh, uh, he so. But Ricky was, he was. Dad said he was always a couple steps ahead of you. He, I, I remember asking my father how Dad was hired by Ricky. Ricky brought him in and said. You know, I have a big problem. You know, he was very dramatic. And the war effort is taking my traveling secretary, and I'm thinking about two guys, Buzzy Bavese or Ed Staples, and I'd like your opinion. And Dad said, well, that's a pretty big question. Let me think about it, and I'll tell you tomorrow. So Dad came in, and Ricky said, it's neither one I'm interested in. It's you. I would like to take, you know, take the traveling secretary's job. and and Dad said that's the way Ricky was. He got me to think about it, and then he offered me, you know, more money, and I could continue to write, which I think is amazing that he was on yeah. the payroll of the Dodgers but still writing for the Eagle. Yeah, and I want to go down uh, that rabbit hole in a little bit, but, but before I do, I want to go back to, to – the fact that he was in high school at 11 and then college at 14, what, did, what did, you, did your dad communicate to you about what that was like being with, with older people all the time? Well, you know, he, he loved sports, uh, but he was just too small. He wasn't, a, you know, he was only about five, seven, uh, you know, but when he was a kid, he could, he had no chance to play sports in, in college because they were all grown men. I think in those days, you know, the average college age was even older. And uh, so he missed that. Um, but, you know, he enjoyed sports, and then and he was writing for the school paper, but then he decided to supply, uh, you know, stories to the, the Eagle about St. John's. And um, 
but I think, you know, to to answer your question, I think he felt like he missed out on, you know, the chance to play sports in school. Yeah, just because from from that uh, specific perspective, but but in terms of just like from even an academic perspective, uh, what was it like for for your dad? What what did he communicate to you uh, ever? Whether whether maybe some of those interviews and tapes that you did with him, uh, what what it was like academically to be with older people. Well, I, you know, challenging, but I I know he wound up number two in his class. Uh, I mean, he was. He was younger than everybody, obviously, but he was he was that good. And the guy that finished number one became a Jesuit priest, and they maintained friendships throughout their life. Uh, Father Hauk was his name, and he used to, when we moved to California, Father Hauk used to send uh, clippings from the New York papers to Dad for him to read in a manila envelope that would arrive regularly but anyway he was the number one guy in the class and dad was number two so i think you know i think he enjoyed the challenges he was very competitive and he i think he enjoyed the challenges of of being good at uh you know at academics but you know and then i know later on he, he you know wrote a lot of magazine articles for extra money but he would. He always loved a good story, so he would dig out stuff, and uh, you know. So anyway, he had he had a competitive streak in him, and, but he, his academic uh, capabilities served him well. It was the fact that he could write so well. Yeah, and it would seem though that you know, considering he went the the sports writing you know, world and kind of against his mother's wishes, if you will. Um, and, and I guess it, it, I'll, I'll frame this twofold. Uh, one, um, did you know your grandmother? Uh, I, I, you know, just, I, I forget whether we talked about, you know, when she died, uh, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I knew her. We called her Nana, N-A-N-A. And, uh, she was very strict. She was very small. Uh, but she was, uh, you know, she was very strict. Uh, and, uh, you know, my my grandfather, Sidney, which I've got his middle, my middle name is Sidney, um, he was apparently a very good swimmer in uh, England. And he came over, uh, he was a butler, a gentleman's gentleman in England, and then came to the New World, came to the United States, and with a friend of his who we called Uncle Bill. And he, uh, Sidney was a very quiet, very sweet man, but pretty powerfully built. So anyway, I think Dad got some of his athletic uh, ability from uh, my grandfather, Randa is what we called him. And um, he went to work for uh, <clears throat> a furniture company in New York, uh, w Sloan was the last name, something Sloan, and <clears throat> William Randolph Hearst hired that company to uh, extract rooms from Europe for the Hearst Castle, and my grandfather was in charge of boxing all the rooms in Europe to ship them to the Hearst Castle, so uh, Granda had an interesting career himself. 
Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Um, it it's it's remarkable uh, uh, to think of just all the different details of that era that I have to throw together here. <laughs> you know, it's it it really is amazing. Uh, um, just the way the way things were and the way things are now. Just you know, trying to see it. You know, trying to see the entire grand picture and context of everything. And um, go to so to continue the the thought after uh, whether or not you knew your nana. Um, in terms of the fact that he went into the, the sports writing world as opposed to academia, uh, being an English professor, um, d- number one, did, did that seem, did that still seem like over the course of, of his career, like not necessarily beneath him, but was, was it a constant needle uh, that she gave him or, uh, and, and, yeah, you know, go go ahead with that, and then I'll follow up with with uh, a little bit more detail regarding the uh, the sports writing world. Well, you know, I'm sure he would have been a good English professor, but uh, he loves sports, so his the sports writing job was perfect for him, and he he enjoyed uh, the action of the sports and the characters that he met, um, and the you know people like DeRocher and Stangle and. You know Ruth and Gehrig, and you know he introduced me to Ty Cobb one day, and um, so he he told me, you know, at the end of his life, he said how lucky I've been to be in the middle of all of these, you know, interesting characters. And I remember saying, yeah, it's true, you know, he was he really, but they were lucky he was there because he he really had a lot to do with the whole Brooklyn Dodger mystique. When you've got somebody writing. You know stories, and Dad was was a good sports writer, and uh, you know he once got punched in the nose by Larry McPhail, but for something that he wrote. <laughs> so he he wasn't, he, but he was not afraid to be positive, and I think you know him writing about Pee Wee and Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder, and it, the connection between the media and the Dodgers themselves. Dad was a link. And I, uh, you know, again, I said to him, I said, you had a lot to do with the whole Brooklyn Dodger mystique, because you know, Dad wrote wrote uh, all of Jackie Robinson's radio shows. Once Jackie made it, he had a radio show uh, every Sunday from wherever they were, and Dad wrote the copy for him. So Dad was close to Jackie, but was writing Jackie's copy uh, for the that, what, that radio broadcast, however long it ran. But anyway, um, that was his writing ability. And I think that's another thing that Ricky saw uh, was his ability. He was, it was like hiring a public relations firm at the same time as a traveling secretary because he was, you know, contributing to the sporting news and writing magazine articles for uh, look and, uh, and all you know, and he the magazine article he wrote in 1941 uh, was titled "The Brain of Baseball." It was about Ricky and how smart he was with the farm system, and Dad was basically saying he was so much smarter than the other owners that Dad thought that was probably the link that when Ricky knew that he had. A friend in Harold Parrott, or at least somebody that admired what he did, when Ricky was brought to Brooklyn to take over the Dodgers, that's where, you know, 
that's what led Ricky to ask Dad to come and work for the Dodgers, and it was a brilliant move by by Ricky. Um, it was great for Dad, and he loved being traveling secretary, but he was, you know, a one-man publicity machine for sure. Yeah, it is remarkable that he continued to – well, I guess at that point, by 1943, had he been pulled off the beat by the time he's on the team? Is it he's going to continue writing for the Eagle but just not be on the beat? No, he he was on the beat when Ricky offered him the job. And I don't actually know, although I'm sure we could go back into the records and see – I know he continued to uh, – he had a – a, a column, not a column, well, he had a column, of course, but he he also did a, a thing called Leo Says, and this is when he was on the Dodger payroll. He was writing Leo's, uh, uh, you know, it, it was, that's what it was called, Leo Says, and then mm. Dad would write write it for DeRocher, and so, you know, in the, in the Daily Eagle, you know, you could read Leo DeRocher Says This, and but Dad ghosted for him, in all of that, and that's some of the way they they got in trouble together with the commissioner when Leo said uh, that uh, McPhail and the Yankees had uh, entertained two known gamblers in the 47 uh, spring training, and then Dad wrote that in the Eagle, and that's when McPhail, you know, claimed that, that you know he, that he was being slandered or whatever he said he wanted the commissioner uh, happy chandler to go after derosher and it, it, they find my father 500 bucks the commissioner did kicked leo out of baseball for 47 and find the dodgers two thousand dollars the commissioner for uh Comments that were detrimental to baseball, something like that. And they also, the commissioner, Chandler, also fined the Yankees $2,000 for their role. But this was 1947, and Dad said it was, McPhail didn't want Ricky to be the one to break the color line. And he was trying to weaken uh, Robinson's chances by getting DeRocher out as the manager and because DeRocher would have fiercely protected Jackie and then um, but anyway Leo got kicked out but dad was part of that whole thing and but that was his writing uh, in the Eagle and that was 47 Hmm. he went to work in January 44 uh, for the Dodgers as the traveling secretary so somewhere in the archives there must be a way to follow how much he was still writing for the Eagle. Yeah, and I think that the uh, uh, digital archives for the Brooklyn Eagle are mainly newspaper.com, newspapers.com or something like that. But I, I, I really right now only have the Times as, as the archive, which is interesting and just a little quick tangent. Um, and maybe you can actually speak to this a little bit. Uh, my mom was talking about – we were reading uh, this this article from October fifth, 1941 – uh, of a like first-person account in the New York Times of the bleachers out in uh, um, uh, in Ebbets Field for a losing campaign against the Yankees, and uh, there there were basically like the language about like he she mentioned something about uh, this this lady that used to make hats, and my mom had no idea 
who this person was. And, and she was saying how, like, you could tell from the language of the way that, that the New York Times was written that it just back then uh, it, was, it was seen to be still, I guess you could still say now, but it was seen to be hoity-toity to have the New York Times in your, your, uh, uh, with your paper. And, you know, like she, she was saying that her, her father, when he would go to work, you know, he'd be reading the Daily News on the way uh, to, to work. And it, it's, it's interesting that there was really a paper for every type of New Yorker back then. Yeah, yeah, and the Eagle was the, you know, the paper of record for Brooklyn. But um, yeah, no, they, and all those writers, the different writers that Dad knew, like Red Smith and all these other people, he, they, they were, they were friends of his when he was, you know, full-time sports writer. But then they, they, they continued to. I'm sure they continue to use that as a source for stories for the Times and whoever, you know, the Mirror and all the other New York papers. But, yeah, it is amazing to think that there were as many as 18 daily newspapers and what at one time in New York. So give me the year again that your dad started on the Dodgers beat. On the Dodgers beat? Um well, he was born in uh, 09, and I think he, he was given the Dodgers beat when he was 23. So it would have been okay. about 1931, I guess, 31 or 32. Yeah, so just basically just around the time that they're building the new stands and, uh, yeah, eventually, you know, the Max Carrier and Casey Stengel comes along. What, what are some of the uh, the stories your dad has about Casey Stengel? Well, the one, you know, Stengel was very entertaining the way he would try to explain things, I guess. And dad, I remember, you know, Casey, he wrote in his book, Lords of Baseball, uh, he said, you know, the Stengel's stories got more entertaining or it got better as the year went on, but the team didn't. And uh, he was, you know, when he was managing the managing the Dodgers. But a lot of times they, when the press conference was over with Stengel, the writers would look at each other and say, what did he just say? You know, he did, he was the master <laughs> of <laughs> double talk. But anyway, but he, so that, that, those are my recollections of Dad and Casey Stengel. So, you know, so, so the, way, the way we're saying it, too, that, that – um, if there were indeed 18 daily newspapers, uh, um, and, and maybe were they all covering every single uh, – well, I guess the Brooklyn Eagle would probably not be covering the Giants ever. Uh, but but there, there probably were a lot of, of writers surrounding Casey at that moment. Like how many writers do you think at any given time on the Dodgers beat specifically uh, would there have been? You know, I, I'd only be guessing, Sam. I, I, you know, I know that you know that in New York with the Yankees and the Giants and the Dodgers, I'm sure that the Eagle covered all of the results. And um, you know, and, and, yeah, and then um, again, you know, there of course, obviously, the general fan was uh, of Dodger ilk, but there were Yankees and Giants fans in Brooklyn, of course. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm, I, I think. I, you know, I don't. I would only, like I say, be guessing, but 
I think, you know, the, the dad told me that when Robinson came in 47, that there were 80 newspapers uh, following, uh, traveling with the Dodgers at the height of it. They had 80, and dad was, as traveling secretary, was in charge of, uh, you know, handling the media. Um, but that's how big of a story it was, obviously, with Robinson. But there were 80 different papers represented, you know, uh, in 1947 that were closely following the the story of Jackie Robinson joining, coming into the major leagues. So that's amazing, you know, that that dad had. Yeah, that's some, crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, let's let's go to that uh, 1948. Uh, I love the story about uh, that your dad was basically sent to tell Leo the news he had been fired. But you know, if you go down the you 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 go ahead with how that whole thing turned out. Say no. Say that again. About uh, what do you mean about Leo being fired? Right. There was just a great story in the book about him going down while Leo's shaving uh, to tell him that he had been fired. And basically just the way it all worked out uh, with with where Leo ended up going by the end of that entire uh, thing. Well, actually, if you're talking about when when Leo came came back and then, and then was traded, one of the few, I guess, uh, managers ever traded in major league baseball he was traded to the giants um dad dad had written when leo got kicked out of baseball for the 47 season i have a letter a handwritten letter from lorraine day leo's actress wife writing to my father dear harold mr ricky wants you to review this letter from Leo asking for reinstatement into baseball and um it's on her stationery and everything else so Leo dad was had helped Leo get reinstated or at least the, you know when he was reinstated right uh but the actual details of of him uh getting traded to the Giants I'm not really at the moment up to speed on that as much only that he got traded right your your dad has this great story see originally before he got traded it seems um he was just going to get outright fired and uh <laughs> the way your dad tells it in the book I believe and if I can try to remember it as as best as possible uh, he goes down, you know, Branch basically uh, uh, tells him to go tell Leo the news. And uh, Leo, when Her- Harold's basically about to say something while Leo's shaving, but Leo cuts him off and says, I'm guessing you're here to, to do the man- old man's dirty work or something something along those lines. And he, he says uh-huh. that, like, he, I'm, not go- I'm not going anywhere unless he said it himself. And I think at that point, like, Branch had, like, gone on a train to go somewhere. Uh, and the Dodgers kept winning. And, and uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, So I think it was um, it was either Clyde Sukforth or, or if it, I may have been pronouncing that incorrectly, but um, it was somebody on the bench that kept saying, Campanella had another one, Campanella had another one, and then the Dodgers went on a winning streak, and he kept, he kept being like, see, he can't. 
we're going to keep winning and he can't fire me if we're on a winning streak. Uh, and then Branch basically, you know, long story short, worked it out with, with Horace Stoneham to get him to go to the, to, to the Giants. Yeah. Well, in those days, you know, at that, in 48, on the road trips, uh, Dad and Leo were roommates. So that was how close they were. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Leo and Leo, yeah. Leo had been fired so many times by McPhail <laughs> that um, Larry Sulfurious McPhail, with the, you know, a heavy drinker, would fire DeRocher, and then the next day when he sobered up, would you know, reinstate him. <laughs> but there was some amazing number of times that Leo was fired. Well, well, the um. I want to give a shout out to our friend Big Red Ruckus on Twitter, who actually during this podcast said, so here's the real question. Did McPhail fire Leo as many times as George fired Billy? The big difference was McPhail sobered up and changed his mind much faster than George did, uh, which I think is certainly an interesting question. It's probably got to be like 80 or 90 times based off of, or, you know, they might be, that might just be like, you know, a dramatic book exaggeration because, you you know, why not? Uh, but it, I, it, I, I could see it happening. I mean, there's many stories. It, it basically happened. The first story that I read, uh, and this was in Frank Graham's book. We always have to bring up Frank Graham here uh, when we talk about your father. Um, uh, in Frank Graham's book, I think uh, it, they were in Hot Springs, Arkansas, for in February because he was in 1939. He was just uh, Leo was just trying to get the all you know as many ball. Uh, ball players together as they could for like, you know, just a bonding session uh, in the hot springs. And um, I, I think like some story came out about the gamblers or whatever. And that's, that's the first, that was the first one. Larry said, you're fired. You're a gambler. Uh, and, and, you know, Leo started packing up and then like at three in the morning, Larry called him wondering about a certain player. <laughs> Leo started unpacking. Yeah, I know that it was a very uh, volatile relationship. I guess you easily can say. And but I don't know who fired who more often. But they were, I guess, Billy Martin and Leo DeRoche were cut from a similar cloth. And I, I want to go down the the drinking uh, path. Uh, we, we were talking about how how much of a drinker Larry McPhail was. Um, and I, it kind of, I always jump to, uh, um, Pete Hamill's a drinking life and just talking about how much drinking there was within, you know, journal, the journalism world and reporters in general, obviously, uh, Pete wasn't necessarily part of the, the, the sports beat. Um, but, but in, in terms of your dad, what kind of drinker was your dad? Does he, did he have any stories to tell you about those eras? Well, one one story that I always got a kick out of was, uh, you know, when they they traded to bring in Hack Wilson, and um, and Wilson was a, a notorious drinker, apparently a heavy gin drinker. That in the first meeting of the year, the manager I think was Uncle Robbie, I think is who it was. But anyway. Um, the manager brought a, a a garden worm and had a glass of gin and a glass of water and the garden worm wiggled around in the water and then they and the guy 
he put it into the gin. It stiffened up and died. And uh, he said, gentlemen, do you learn anything from this little demonstration? And he said, Mr. Wilson, you learn anything from this? And Hack Wilson said, I sure do, Skip. And if you drink gin, you'll never get worms. So it was <laughs> drink. Drinking was part of it, and certainly uh, McPhail was was a heavy drinker, and apparently he used to, uh, when he was trying to trade for somebody, because he was, you know, building, trying to build the Dodgers into a, a pennant contender, he would get uh, uh, another owner, he would try to drink him, to the point where he would convince him to give him, you know, make the trade. And um, anyway, so I, th- I think it was heavy. And that was an, another reason my grandmother didn't want Dad to go into um, the sports world because there was heavy drinking among the sports writers and even the athletes, you know, I mean, or the baseball players. So, um, but Dad was not a heavy drinker at all, but, you know, he would enjoy, a, you know, a Manhattan and a Rob Roy, and he and Mom used to have cocktails and stuff. But uh, he was he was never a very heavy. He wasn't a heavy drinker at all. And um, the uh, Mr. Ricky was not didn't drink at all. Obviously, he was a teetotaler. Right. Um... Did your dad ever have any stories about Larry's saloon? It it it, it is fitting that uh, that's what Larry, one of the things Larry did when he first moved there, when he first got to Brooklyn, was build the press a bar. <laughs> you know, I I I don't really have any anything that comes to mind. Only that he was, you know, McPhail was uh, generous with the alcohol. Um, that, but anyway, I don't, I don't have, you know, other than you know the the recollection that uh, that Dad wrote something, and when McPhail got, you know, had been drinking, he punched my father in the nose, as well as banning him from Evans Field for life. He he said, you know, he, he McPhail told that the Eagle and my daddy that he would never be allowed in Ebbets Field again. And of course the the Eagle didn't go along with that and the next day when he sobered up he was dad was allowed to go to Ebbets Field. But that happened somewhere mm-hmm. in the late thirties, I guess. Now now it I believe we did talk about this uh, on the first podcast, um but, but here's a question that I did not ask you or at least uh, um a statement. Um, I, I think one of the reasons, yeah, we, we read the story out of Frank Graham's book, and and your dad apparently went right to the phone, according to Frank Graham and his account of it. Uh, he went right to the phone for like a first-hand account with Ford Frick on the phone. And I think one of the reasons, you know, Ford was probably uh, um, sympathized was the fact that he used to be a beat writer himself. Yeah, Dad got a bunch of. He told me that Ford Frick gave him, uh, you know, a tip on a story, and he got a, um, <clears throat> he got a, a a lead on a lot of stuff. So yeah, Frick and Dad were were friends, and I'm trying to remember, but I'm not remembering at the moment what. It was some real big story that Ford Frick 
gave my dad and that you know and he ran with but Frick must have been a good guy and he was you know he was president of the National League I think at the time I think when when the St. Louis Cardinals said they weren't going to take the field if um, Robinson came and uh, Frick uh, stood up against that so but anyway they were they were good friends for sure yeah. Um, did did your dad uh, have any stories regarding any like really rough, drunken beat writing guys? Like like any, anybody within the sports writing world he ever told you about that it was just a a rough scene for them? Well, no, nothing comes to mind. You know, only that you know that it existed. I mean, there were. There were one of the reasons he got the Dodger beat. I think was the whoever was on the beat must have missed the deadline and because of drinking, and then that's how you know it opened up. But um, you, you know nothing nothing uh, comes to mind in, uh, about a, a rough story. But I know that you know that drinking was part of the whole scene and. Um, um, and if Leo didn't drink much either, he was, he, you know, so, but the gambling was the thing that, uh, was that, that was yeah. certainly true. And that was, yeah. And at one, some point, um, I think it was right after, I mean, it, it's basically at the time that they're becoming the, they're getting a little cocky, you know, 41, 42. Uh, it, it was said that they were the, the, uh, the, most card playing team in all of baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently they were, you know, they, they, they were a lot of them. Well, dad, the story I also get a, got a kick out of when he was, had just joined the Dodgers and was traveling. Um, and they were in Cincinnati in like 1944 or 45, I guess it must've been. And he and Leo were Leo said, kid, have you ever been to a card room? And uh, Dad said, no, you know, and so Leo took uh, my father to a card room across the river in Kentucky, and he said he walked in, and there were three people he met, Sleep Out Louie, Cigar Charlie, and The Dancer were the three guys. He said they didn't call him Bob or Jack or Jim. That's what they were known as. And Leo, you know, they all knew Leo when he walked in. And and Leo says, you got anything for me? He says to sleep out Louie. And he said, could be, could be. And then, <laughs> so this guy says, tells Leo, he said, well, when you see Anzac running at Latonia, bet. And then Leo says, how much should I bet? And the guy says, bet and bet and bet. It was a fix. And so... Uh, Leo and Dad, uh, you know, being roommates, in the morning they'd have breakfast and Leo would check the paper. In the morning that it showed Anzac was going to run at Latonia, Dad said he got up like a tack and started putting money down it all over, you know, in Minneapolis and New York and betting on this horse. And so Dad was playing golf with... uh, you know, on an off day, and he mentioned that Leo had gotten a tip, 
and the guy, and it's in the book, but I can't remember the name, but he dropped his club and just ran to the clubhouse to put money down on this horse. So when <clears throat> Dad got back to the hotel, he thought he had never bet. And he said, well, maybe there's something. And he put $20 down on this Anzac, and Dad won $800 on Anzac because uh, Anzac won the race. And he said it was a a boat race, you know, at the end of a of a season, they, the jockeys that were down on their luck, they would set up a fix, and and that was and oh wow that was Anzac. So Leo definitely knew the <clears throat> knew the gambling crowd and was a gambler himself, obviously. But he must have made a fortune on that one. I mean, you just you gotta wonder at what point did that kind of corruption kind of get seeded out a a, a little bit. You know, I, I mean, it, it is amazing, especially as we talk about, uh, you know, what sports going to come back first, how baseball is going to come back, if it does come back. Um, you think that, you know, baseball, boxing, and horse racing, they say, were the, the three biggest sports at, at one time or another in this country. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the mob, you know, had a, had their way too well. Obviously, they did in 1919 with the Black Sox. But, um, yeah, gambling was, yeah, and they were, so that's why Leo, you know, he knew the gamblers, and the gamblers knew him. But when McPhail was hosting uh, this horse handicapper named Memphis Engelberg, and then another guy that owned the Cotton Club, which must have had a mob connection somehow, named Connie Immelman, they were sitting they were guests of the Yankees in Havana, Cuba in 47 spring training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Leo said, I could never get away with that. They'd kick me out of baseball if I, but McPhail can do it. And so dad put that in the Leo says column. Um, and that's when the, you know, it hit the fan for the, the big rhubarb that happened with <laughs> it, you know, and they, and they, so and my father was fined 500 bucks, and Mr. Ricky paid the fine. And uh, Dad said, well, we didn't leave the tickets for the gamblers. And Dad took a train to Versailles, Kentucky, to see the commissioner. And he brought with him affidavits from New York sports writers saying they knew that the Yankees and McPhail had hosted these two gamblers, and it wasn't the Dodgers and it wasn't Leo. And so Dad confronts the commissioner, Chandler, and says, uh, I want my, you know, we didn't do this, and I want my 500 bucks back. And the Chandler says, all right, I'll give you your $500 back. It'll come from, you know, not from the commissioner's office, somebody in Ohio. And um, Dad says to the commissioner, if I'm innocent, obviously Leo's innocent, you've got to lift this suspension. And then the commissioner says, no, there are other things you're not aware of, and you are hereby silenced by the power of the commissioner that you can't talk about this anymore. And uh, so then I said to my father, I said, well, what happened then? And as soon as the check cleared, he gave the story to somebody. And I'm not sure if it was Frankie Graham or who it was, but it came out an eight-column headline that Parrot had gotten his money back. And that it went back, you know, it it you know became a big story again, 
And I remember looking at my dad. I said, Dad, I said, the commissioner of baseball must have wanted to kill you. And he said he probably did, but he couldn't say anything. He couldn't say anything more because it was all a setup to get Leo out of baseball. But Dad wasn't afraid. You know, he he leaked the story or gave the story to one of his writer friends in 1947. And McPhail was upset. And, you know, um, Chandler, Chandler wound up getting, you know, replaced, uh, you know, relatively soon, I think. But Chandler, throughout his whole life, lobbied against Leo getting into the Hall of Fame because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of that. And I know that uh, personally because uh, I was in San Francisco and they had a panel of writers and players, and Joe Morgan was up there. And I put my hand up, and there were, you know, probably 200 people in the room. And I said, you know, should Leo be in the Hall of Fame, yes or no? And um, it was Giants, and and uh, Joe Morgan voted no. He said, no, I don't think he should be. And then I ran into him after that event, and I said, why did you say no that Leo shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame? And he said, well, Happy Chandler told me all about Leo DeRocher. You know, so Chandler had lobbied against Leo, and right up until... 1980, well, it was 1988. It happened to be March 1st. Uh, Leo missed the Hall of Fame by one vote, and uh, uh, they were they blackballed Leo all those years, and that was part until, of what, until his, after I mean uh, until posthumously. Uh, what was it? Right, Nin- he was 1992, 1992, 1993. After, after he died, yeah. Well, the thing is, you think you know, so? I, I mean, was that was that kind of like we don't want to give him the satisfaction while he he's alive? And and then I I do want to ask you uh, about Leo a little bit more. Yeah, no, I I think they hated Leo, and I, I think now I'm speculating, but I think some of those people on the uh, on the the committee there were 20 people on the committee. Ted Williams was one of them, and I wrote them a letter. Uh, you know, Buzzy Bavese was on there, and Red Barber and. Roy Campanella, and I wrote him what Dad thought that Leo should have been put in long ago. But anyway, um, when they they may have, some of them may have known that Leo orchestrated the cheating in the 51 season with the military telescope in the polo grounds where they were stealing signals um, from July through the end of the year and the Bobby Thompson home run and all that stuff, they were getting the signals uh, from the military telescope, and, the, and that was Leo's, Leo approved of all of that, and that was 1951. So some of those players knew, some of those people must have known about Leo orchestrating the cheating that, you know, has resurrected again with the Astros. Um, but they, you know, Leo, if that had come out, Leo shouldn't have been put into the Hall of Fame. I think that's worse than the steroid thing because they they won 37 out of 43 home games from July when they put the military telescope in in 1951 in the polo grounds. 
And uh, I know that figure from Ralph Branca because Ralph told me that he found out about it in 1954 uh, when a giant got mm. traded to the Tigers and told him, he said, Ralph, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but, you know, we had a telescope and uh, we were stealing signals. And Ralph knew about that from 1954 on and went to all of those Bobby Thompson, Ralph Ranker reunions and never said a word. And which it just showed the kind of class that Branca had. He didn't want to, you yeah. know. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't think Leo should have been put in the Hall of Fame if, having known that. I, I really do think that that that's cheating that really should kick you out of baseball. Yeah. Um, well. Well. So let's. I think if it weren't for that, he would be a Hall of Famer. But let's talk about the kind of manager he he was and and. Um, Think think about like what what stops it. He won one World Series in 1954, um, and obviously we we now know retroactive, uh, uh, you know, retrospectively um, about 1951. So my question for you though is, do you think that like looking at 1941 and the way Game Four played out, and some of you know the, the way 1969 even played out? Do you think it was kind of maybe like hubris, uh, maybe stubbornness on Leo's part that kind of got in his way from becoming a, a more World Series successful manager? Well, I, I remember the, the comment Dad told me that, you know, uh, Ricky um, thought, you know, he, he, was, he could take a third-place team and win a pennant but he could also take a very good team, and when he lost interest in the team, it would drop, you know, lower than its abilities. And I know that Leo was mad at Robinson for coming in so overweight in, like, I guess in 48 or 49 because he was on the banquet circuit and stuff. So Leo was pushing for Robinson to be uh, brought up at the end of the 46 season. And Dad told me that, that, but Mr. Ricky said it wasn't time yet. He couldn't do it. And then when Ricky brought up Robinson in 47, it was, you know, Leo's quote in in Dad's writing, and, you know, I, I don't care if he's black, white, or he's got stripes like a zebra, he's going to put money in our pocket, and, you know, he he's going to play. So Leo was very adamantly in favor of Robinson getting to play in the major leagues. But then he was volatile enough. He would say something. And I think he and uh, Robinson got crosswise when Leo was critical of, uh, you know, Robinson coming in out of shape. But I think, you know, my personal experience was in LA when he was brought in as the third base coach and I used to catch fungo for him. He would warm up the infield. I used to throw in a batting practice from, at the Coliseum and in from the Chinese wall. And then I changed in Leo's locker. And then, uh, but uh, you know, he would warm him up. But he was the one that was calling for Maury Wills to steal. And Wills wouldn't. Dad, told, you know, told me said Wills wouldn't have broken Ty Cobb's record if it wasn't for DeRocher being uh, the third base coach because he was the one calling for Wills to go. And, you know, he broke the 
I think he stole 104 bases and broke Ty Cobb's 96 steal record. But Dan mm-hmm. told me that Leo was basically running the club because they all the players loved playing for Leo because he his aggressive style, and um, you know he was he and Alston were uh, you know different kind of guys obviously uh, I mean they were but anyway Leo Leo was you know he was he was a fun guy to be around he certainly opinionated and would you know call a spade a spade and um on the basis of contribution to baseball this was my father's quote I said is Leo in the Hall of Fame and if not why not and he dad said well the the Hall of Fame is not exactly the Twelve Apostles, and Leo, on the basis of contribution to baseball, should be in the Hall of Fame. That's what my father said to me. That's why I went to bat for Leo to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and um, but I don't know that Dad knew that Leo had orchestrated that military telescope thing. And I'm just speaking personally. I just think that's so egregious to steal signals that way mm-hmm. um, that um, had that been known, I don't think, you know, it's it's like the steroids. Um, I don't think he should have been put in the Hall of Fame. And even now when they're trying to figure out what to do with the Astros, they might retroactively yeah. remove Leo from the Hall of Fame for what he, he orchestrated in 51. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm not sure whether that's going to happen right now. Um, but you know, it, it, the I think everything gets blown into to such a heightened state these days because of of the way social media works. That you know, you obviously have to bring up the question of whether you're retroactively taking the pennant away from the Giants if you're also calling for the Astros World Series trophy to be taken away. So it's it's a very uh, hard decision. It's a very hard, hard conversation to have. Right. Yep. So anyway. Well, anyway, yeah. Sam, I hope <laughs> I hope that stuff is good for you. I mean, at least it it's a, a favorite subject for me talking about Dad with all of his experiences, and we were very close. You know, I'm the youngest of the four brothers, and but I liked writing, and you know, was you know sports mm-hmm. editor the college paper and then thought about sports writing but um and then uh, yeah I like tennis and dad loved tennis and so that we we wound up he, when he got out of baseball he wrote the lords of baseball in in Portland Oregon where while he was living with us and um so a lot of you know a lot of his uh his stories obviously I'd heard and when Dad told me, I said, Dad, why didn't that book, The Lords of Baseball, do better? He said, well, uh, O'Malley bought 12,000 copies of it and had them taken out of circulation so that they weren't in the bookstores and people couldn't buy it when it was being reviewed. And that was sounded so far-fetched at the time. I didn't know what to... I you know I was like is that possible that Walter O'Malley would actually buy and you know destroy copies so that it, his image would because it the book was very not, not very complimentary of Walter O'Malley 
And when I told that after, to my brother after Dad died, Todd said he told me that too. And I said, if there's any chance that's true, we got to republish the book. And that's what motivated us to republish the Lord's Baseball when it got back in, you know, now in better circulation. I think originally there were only like 2,500 books that got out. Well, I actually do see that there are some original copies being sold on the on on the side market, the third market. Um, some of the, the original yeah. cover, it, it is really it's a really cool looking original cover. Um, it would be interesting if you were to uh, next time uh, you you possibly publish it, let's say on the you know uh, uh, Kindle or or iBook or something like that. Maybe if you went with that retro cover, that would be that might be a, a cool thing to have digitized. Um, I, I think that and I'm sure you have a copy uh, around of that original one too. So I was going to ask. I, I, I we when we first talked about this on the last podcast, I don't think I asked this question. So I was wondering it. it it, when you released in 2001, it did a lot better. Like you were able to to have a, a good, uh, especially with Sabers and and others' uh, support, you were able to have a good, you know, re uh, uh, re edition. Oh yeah, no, definitely, it, it went very well. Actually, when I got on uh, NPR with Bob Edwards, there was 13 million people listening every morning. It really took off, and then the. Uh, Sports Illustrated called, and they did a full-page review on the, the fact that the, the the children of Harold Parrott were republishing his book. And when the guy that played Dad in the movie 42, he got the role. He tracked me down through my Go Bonfire email, and uh, he said when he got the part, they handed him the Lords of Baseball, the new one, and he said, your character wrote this book, you know, you should read it. And that's, so I'm quite sure that the republishing uh, stimulated a lot more interest in, and awareness in Dad's writing. And I know from watching the movie that they used a lot of Dad's writing, which nobody had written about Ben Chapman at the time Dad did in mm -hmm. 1976 when it was first published. And so Dad told stories, you know, like the midnight meeting and I don't care if he's black, white, or he's got stripes like a zebra, all that stuff. That is pure Harold Parrott writing that was written in, and came to print in 76. And um, that's, you know, and the, much of that book would have been buried uh uh, but I think when we republish it, and we, you know, and so yes, it did, it did very well. That's great to hear, and it's so well written, and it goes into so many different details about the history of baseball on an executive level that that really doesn't, you know, everybody's always wondering, uh, like from the ball four perspective, what what are the ball players doing? But it, it, it all the conniving, all of the the dirty tricks, you know, are right there. And I, I want to, uh, you know, encourage an entire new generation to, to read it. So uh, hopefully one day we can get it digitized. That, that would be a, that would be really cool. Yeah. Well, you, when, just to, to finish up, uh, Walter O'Malley was such a manipulative man. And the quote with Ricky, the most devious man I ever met in my life 
is what Ricky said about O'Malley. But Buzzy Bavese told me to my, you know, we just had coffee together, and he, he said O'Malley had uh, Peter Pitches, the sheriff of Los Angeles, checking my father's bank account on a regular basis. He was looking for a way to fire Dad once they That's built crazy. Dodger Stadium. And um, so Peter Pitches told O'Malley that Dad had a deposit for $6,000 in his account. And O'Malley said, that's ticket money. And he started, then he proceeded to fire my father. Now, Buzzy went to O'Malley and said, that's not ticket money. He just sold his boat. He had a boat. We had a boat called the Dodger the Four and in Marina del Rey. And um, Dad sold it for 6000 bucks. But Buzzy said he wouldn't listen. He said what he did to your father was criminal, and you know he um, he said when it, Buzzy's quote to me was when it came to money there was something wrong with Walter. But I'm sure that O'Malley tried to stop the circulation of of that book because it told so many stories about O'Malley, how cheap he was, and how how he you know what a the way he operated, and he wanted to protect his image, which he, you know, has been put into the Hall of Fame. Um, but anyway, O'Malley was a very devious yeah. man, and and um, uh, so I'm very happy that we, you know, it was primarily my brother Todd and I, uh, well, it was, I told Todd, I said, we really should republish this book, and, and so my brother had a seat on the New York stock exchange. So we hmm. he funded it. I got the publisher and then we got Dave Anderson to write the new forward. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm through, I'm very happy that we did it. And so that it's, it's, it's now back out in circulation. And I do have to look into seeing about getting it on Kindle or something like that. I will gladly write every word of it onto uh, onto you know some document paper, uh, uh, digital paper <laughs> for for the uh, the the publisher. It, it's it needs to be even further out there, and I'm I'm so happy that uh, outside of Walt Walter O'Malley's deviousness, you guys are have been able to get it into better circulation. Uh, before we go, I, I will leave you with this question. I, I want to. Uh, it was just something that popped in my head earlier, and I forgot to ask it. Um, sure. When when did your dad first meet Branch Rickey, uh, and and when did when did a, a relationship start forming before he came to the Dodgers? Because it does seem that that he asked your dad to come on board relatively quickly. Yeah. Well, it, it was the article. It was a magazine article for This Week magazine, 1941, and it was uh, called "The Brain of Baseball," and it was written in 41 and dad thinks that was the article that uh that caused Ricky to you know to, to realize who Harold Parrott was and then when Ricky was brought in in 43 I think he came uh, to the take over the Dodgers after McPhail was fired um then that's when he brought him into his office and dad was beat writer for the Dodgers at the time and he said I'd like your opinion and about Bavese or this other guy and you know that's dad said it was he thought the 
magazine article is really what uh, uh, you know mm. started the the relationship between Ricky and Parrot. It's amazing, and and uh, you know, there's so many other questions to ask, but uh, we're we're going to have to cut it off right now. And I will go to uh, to you last uh, for your, you know, I mean, I'll go to you first for your last word, excuse me, uh, as we like to do around here. Uh, and, but first, let me say, Brian, thank you so much as always for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Yeah, you're most welcome, Sam. Yeah, no, I just my final thought is that proud of dad you know and that he really was uh a part of the whole brooklyn dodger mystique and he really he was uh you know uh, a man of integrity that wasn't afraid to write and uh you know stir comments and you know he well deserved being in the brooklyn dodger hall of fame and so uh anyway it's again it's always a pleasure to talk about him and happy to you know, and wish you the best in all of your efforts to uh, continue this story. Much appreciated, and we're we're getting uh, real deep into it right now, and I appreciate you helping me to develop your father's character within all of this. So, And, and thank you all for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast and joining us and helping to keep this uh, endeavor going. Thank you all for listening. Take care. <laughs>